This podcast is sponsored by MedLite. First and first response. When they trust you to get there, trust Kimtex MedLite Transport Skid Units, the best-selling off-road rescue units in the world. Equipped for medical rescue and compatible with most UTVs, MedLite from Kimtech answers the call. Contact them at 888-546-8358 or kimtechresearch.com. Hello, everybody. This is Jonathan Fight, co-founder and chief executive of Beyond Lucid Technologies. I am also a columnist for the Journal of Emergency Medical Services. Uh, I contribute the podcast called Sacred Cows and Data Cubes. Uh, and today we are, I'm thrilled, we are thrilled uh, to host the inaugural GEMS Talk <laughs> featuring an illustrious first guest. Um, I honestly can't think of anyone that I'd be more excited to have this first dive in conversation live. Uh, uncensored, unfettered, uh, unbarred, not entirely sure where it's going to go. We're going to see uh, with James McLaughlin uh, of currently the Ute Pass Regional Health Service District. Um, so, James, uh, can you hear me? I can hear you great. Uh, Jonathan, it's an honor to be here with you and with everybody out there. Thanks for, I know that our time is precious these days and and to take some time to spend with us. I, that's, that's awesome. I, I really appreciate that. So, well, today, so so the the overarching topic of today's conversation uh, is going to focus on the real and opportunity costs of community paramedicine, also known uh, as mobile integrated health, uh, or in some cases, mobile integrated community paramedicine, or some other mishmash. Uh, once upon a time, the uh, chief medical officer of AMR, I heard once describe it as nine one two instead of nine one one. Uh, so there's my shout out to Ed Rock. Uh, so I think one of the reasons why I find you to be such a fascinating leader, and I wanted to lead off with you on this, these GEMS talks, uh, is because you have a truly unique set of perspectives. I think the service where you work is unique, uh, incredibly multifaceted, particularly for your size. Um, you as an individual have I was thinking about it earlier this morning. I, I consider you to be one of the most analytic people in this business um, at a time when our industry is striving to be more analytical, more data-driven, uh, kind of embrace the idea that data are useful. Uh, so you are, I think, the perfect person to, to dig into some of that with. And there is also some news against our uh, today that came out this morning, uh, which is a, some M&A activity. Uh, between a company that does sort of large-scale disaster and uh, uh, patient identity, family reunification type activities um, that got acquired by another company today, uh, just this morning announced. So there's some, some news that's out there that I think I'd like to tap your brain on, because again, some of the work that you do with things like behavioral health, community paramedicine, monoclonal antibodies, but also all that is 911. Um, you know, really touching the gamut. And so when we look at the evolution of this industry, we're kind of in the middle of it. Um, and so why don't we start, uh, time being precious, as you mentioned, why don't we start by you telling us and the world a bit more about you, a bit more about your background. Uh, let's touch particularly on that uh, finance degree, I believe is that international finance. Um, again, at a time we're going to talk about community paramedicine and its value, the cost and things like opportunity cost. And I want to tap your brain on all of that. So tell us about you, take a few minutes, uh, and then we'll we'll sort of get into some detail here. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, John. That's that's a really kind introduction. And uh, 
Um, yeah, so my name is James McLaughlin. I'm a director of community paramedicine with Ute Pass Regional Health Service District. Uh, we cover 539 miles, square miles of, of territory um, in near the, the Great Divide uh, in Colorado. Uh, we cover portions of four counties to include Park, Douglas, Teller, and El Paso counties. Um, we are at our heart a 911 ambulance provider, but we are a health service district. Um, it's a special district in the state of Colorado uh, that allows us to do more than just provide ambulance service. And ambulance service is very important, but we know that the world is changing and the needs are changing. And um, especially when we look at our marginalized populations, um, the services, the way they access services have become extremely complicated. And, and folks um, out there demand from, from their local services um, a change in how those services are provided. Um, and we heard that demand loud and clear, and we saw the need loud and clear. And uh, my boss, Tim Deanst, who is, I have to say, hands down, the greatest boss I've ever had the pleasure to work for, um, uh, really saw this early. And uh, it just so happened that um, he saw something in me that, that he felt would, would lend itself to uh, growing this program and, and, and creating uh, this, new, this new wing of, of healthcare services. And um, he gave me that opportunity and, and I'm so thankful for that. And, um, but I'll tell you, honestly, um, it's not our organization that, that makes this possible. I, we asked the question, but it's our community partners that make this possible. It's the public health department. It's the Department of Human Resources. It's the local uh, hospital, UC Health and Pikes Peak Regional Hospital. It's um, the fire departments that we work with. It's all the little agencies, the law enforcement agencies, the, the public school district. I mean, if you name it, it, you know, anybody in the community that provides service, the senior coalition, um, everybody has a desire to work together and collaboratively and, and it would not make the work we do would not be possible without that collaboration and without that desire to work together. Well, and obviously there's plenty to dig in right there, because again, I mentioned you, you as being a unique individual and you guys as a unique organization and, and that collaborative nature is something that I think is both missing and essential to the future of this industry. So let's come back to that. Uh, Tell us a bit about you. Sort of first of all, you how you got here. I know you're a fellow Californian like me, so talk a little bit about that. But um, also your source of passion. Again, I mean, you are a guy who clearly could put that big brain to use in a variety of different industries. Um, what what drew you to mobile medicine uh, in and the various services in which you've operated? What's your source of passion? Let, let's start with that. So that's a fantastic question. I love telling this story because I, I am really, really passionate about leave, it. So, leave out no detail. We, we will keep people here until tomorrow if need be. Go. So, um, so I started, as you said, I started in California. I joke with people. I got to Colorado as quick as I could. Uh, but I started out in California. I even spent a little bit of time volunteering in a small town in upstate New York, uh, Broome County uh, in Binghamton, New York. So uh, near the Pennsylvania border. Um, but uh, I did that as a teenager and then uh, came back and worked for uh, first Foothill Ambulance and then American Medical Response and um, grew with that organization and uh, worked in the uh, Sacramento Valley area and then spent some time working in Alameda County um, and uh, uh, 
ended up in, in West Sacramento in Yolo County for a while and in Placer County for a while. So um, really got an opportunity to work in a bunch of different areas and see a bunch of different medicine. But the one thing that I consistently saw, and I even saw that once I transferred out here to Colorado and worked in El Paso County uh, for AMR. One thing I consistently saw was we would get on scene with these patients, with these clients in need. And I would, I, 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 the only thing I could offer them was a ride to the hospital because that's what I was empowered to do. Um, and that was the model at the time. That was how we provided care. And that's how, to this day, how we're incentivized for providing care. It's utilizing the most expensive form of transport to the most expensive destination, neither of which is properly tooled to address the needs of, some, of somebody who doesn't need emergent care. But the, the reality is, is our healthcare system has gotten so complicated and it's so difficult to navigate that the one consistent thing within the healthcare system is you can press the easy button and the easy button is the 911 system. You can press three numbers and somebody shows up and they may not deliver you to the right level of care, but they'll get you somewhere. Um, and unfortunately, what I saw from that on a regular basis, and, and maybe other people out there had the same experience, I was so frustrated because we would see the same people over and over again. And we, I, I, I could tell you exactly what was going to happen. We were going to give them a ride to the hospital. They were going to go to the hospital. The hospital was going to tell them that it wasn't something that could be addressed in the hospital and they needed to follow up with their primary care physician, which they probably didn't even have. Um, and then we were shocked that we were called to see him again the next day or later on that same day because we weren't listening to the client. We weren't actively listening to what they needed. And even if we did, we weren't empowered to make a difference. And, and that drives a lot of the burnout and a lot of the frustration that we see in, in, in pre-hospital healthcare providers today um, because we, we feel helpless as providers um, to, you know, to address what we see as the underlying needs. Um, and so I, I bucked the system, you know, I, I went out there and I started asking the questions, what can we do? What resources are available? Who's out there? What, you know, what can we do for you? And I was met by the system with resistance back then. And that was, it didn't matter which agency you worked for, because I had an opportunity to work for fire departments. I had the opportunity to work for AMR I had the opportunity to work for other companies. That was just not how business was done back then. And so I always tell people, if you're looking for a good community paramedic, go and look at the call records. And the paramedic who's spending the longest time on scene, that's the paramedic you want as a community paramedic because they're already doing what you want them to do. They're already asking those complicated questions and they're already looking for those resources um, as a general rule. And that's where I was. And then I came out here to Colorado and I had the same experience out here. Um, went to work for the fire department for a while, then had an opportunity to come up here to um, to work up in Teller County with Tim and his team. Um, and they were doing some pretty exciting stuff in medicine in general. Um, so I was really humbled to be part of that team. And then about a week after I got hired, um, I was on my motorcycle and was um, knocked off of my motorcycle at a high rate of speed and uh, ended up broken. Oh, no, I had no idea. You what? Yeah. <laughs> so I ended up broken for a while. Wow. And so I wasn't able, so here I was, you know, newly hired with this organization, um, just learning the ropes, really kind of humbled to be there. And then I go and get hurt. 
So I, you know, the day after my accident, I get a call from Tim. The first thing he wants to know is, am I, am I okay? I want to know and, you were okay. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fantastic. I'm great, man. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a fortuitous accident as it turns out. And a lot of, of really, you know, from, from those challenges in life, as it often happens, a lot of really positive stuff has come from that. Right. But I was lying there thinking I was going to get fired. I was going to lose my job. I wasn't going to have, you know, and, and that's just not the organization I work for. First of all, that's not our DNA. Um, but second of all, um, the uh, what Tim saw was an opportunity there. He had just got done meeting with uh, some folks from MedStar um, who had come up and talked about the amazing program that they had down there. And he had heard that they had started it with an employee who was on light duty. And so he saw, he saw my, my Humpty Dumpty moment as a great opportunity to, uh, um, to put somebody out there. And he saw some, some things in me that I didn't even see in myself at that point um, to, you know, so he empowered me, go out, find out what this community paramedicine thing is, come find out what this uh, mobile integrated healthcare thing is, and, and then figure out the best way to integrate it into your community. And so that's what I did. I went down, I met with the team at MedStar. I went and met with the folks in uh, Wake County, North Carolina. I talked to some folks from Minnesota. Um, I went and actually, I just happened to be going on vacation. So I went out and looked at some programs in Australia and what they were doing and in the UK and what they were doing. Um, and I came back with just a ton of ideas. But the one thing I understood more than anything else is community paramedicine is unique to every community. And if you try and put it into a box and call it this, um, you're really limiting what your possibilities and your opportunities are. And so, I mean, there's so much there to dig into. <clears throat> One of the biggest challenges that I think, uh, I mean, I, I don't have to think it, everybody knows this, that the, the challenge people try to figure out how do you pay for it, of uh, some of what we're going to talk about today, because I have some opinions on this matter, as I'm sure you do. Um, but when it comes to doing that community assessment and... <clears throat> And really understanding what the pain points really are, as opposed to what you think they are. I'll give you an example. Um, uh, Bruce Baxter, who's the uh, chief of New Britain EMS in Connecticut, uh, had uh, an amazing insight for me at one point when we, we were talking about community paramedicine and substance use disorder, right? And the idea that he, in his department, uh, is just wrapping up the first year of an extraordinary program with EMS, very much like yours, EMS at the center of an ecosystem um, focused specifically on substance use. And we were talking about safe injection sites, right? Because in California, in North Carolina, in a number of other places, that's a big topic, right? Is, is if we know that infectious disease is a thing and we want to keep, uh, we want to keep that problem at bay, uh, that this seems like a solution. And so knowing that the area around Hartford, Connecticut can be rough and has some, some uh, uh, narcotics issues, I reached out to him and asked him his thoughts about the safe injection site. And he said, well, that depends where. I thought, well, what do you mean? I mean, New Britain is not that big. So what do you mean? And he says, well, in this part of town, we have a uh, a heroin problem. In this part of town, we have a crack problem. In this part of town, we have a different problem. And so if you introduce the wrong solution or the right solution in the wrong place, you can actually make the problem worse, right? You've now given folks who are uh, uh, hooked on this substance, the opportunity to 
safely, yes, but still dabble in something else, right? <laughs> and, and obviously, if you've got that, that uh, tendency uh, in your person, <laughs> that could cause you significant harm. So it really, to me, highlighted the idea that the, I, the notion that I want the MedStar program, I want the REMSA program, I want, you know, I'm going to give kudos to Alameda Fire because I worked with them for years on their CP program. Uh, so uh, to the degree that they have a, wonder, have, have a wonderful CP program, um, but there are models and then there's the local nuance, right? And so it may turn out, I've found, I want to know what your thoughts are, that, that oftentimes the archetype of a CP or the big six, as I often refer to it, like Alina and MedStar and Pittsburgh and so on, uh, don't necessarily jive at the local level if your community is rural, if your community is uh, different socioeconomic makeup, language barriers, right? All these types of details. So what do you recommend to folks who ask you, want to know how do you, how did you learn what your actual community needs were as opposed to the you know, the big CMS related items, congestive heart failure, COPD, et cetera. Uh, tell us about your programs. I want to particularly make sure we talk about the behavioral health one, but you know, how did you figure that out? What was your process for doing the community assessment when you recommend to other folks who listen to you, what tools do you need? What's, what, what math do you need? What statistical analysis are you doing? What's your source? We have a GIGO problem in this industry, garbage in, garbage out. So what, what are you using to, tell, to, to guide yourself? And what would you recommend to folks who want to be where you are? You know, follow these steps. Wow. That, that is a lot of questions. And I, one that's, question. That's all one question with a bunch <laughs> of semicolons, by the way. Yeah. So, and, and it's fantastic because what it tells me is that you know exactly you know, what to ask. And, and because that, that is the truth. The, the challenge here is that, um, you know, you first and foremost, you have to be flexible. Um, what you think your program is going to look like um, is nothing like what it will look like in the end. You have, you, you can't be married to one idea. You, you have to, you have to almost like water, you have to, you have to be able to flow in different directions and, and, and bend to resistance Love that. Um, Love without that. breaking. Um, and so I, I would say the first thing is, is absolutely flexibility. The, the next thing is passion because you're going to get knocked down. Things aren't always going to work the way you want them to. And, and I think we know that in life, but you have to have that passion to drive you forward, to push you forward, to keep going. When you hear a no at one door, it doesn't mean that, that just means that wasn't the right way to do it. It doesn't mean that your, your program's done. It means you, you go and you knock on that next door and you find that next solution. Um, and then the third thing is um, ask questions, but actively listen. Listen to what people are actually saying and what they're not saying. Um, and make sure that you involve all your partners um, right from the beginning and identify everyone who might even be a partner and invite them. They may not all come to the table from the beginning, but having, having the invite is important because later on it'll open a door um, and it'll let them know what you're doing. And, and it's good for our industry if, if our folks are doing that. If paramedics are out there talking to non-traditional parties that they don't normally work with, you know, uh, homeless shelters and um, law enforcement agencies and public health departments, um, what it does is it shows, it shows those organizations that, wow, there's something really special going on with this agency. 
there's something, you know, they're, they're asking questions that we've never typically or traditionally seen from paramedics. And maybe they'll come across something in the near future that will be an opportunity for you guys to collaborate on together because you'll be on their radar at that point. Love it. And that's how, that's how everything came together for us. Honestly, we started, um, we did that community needs assessment. We were very fortunate that our public health department was really open to what we were doing. And they just happened in the state of Colorado, every public health department is to, is required to do a community needs assessment every five years. So they had already, yeah, they had already asked a lot of the questions and, and, and already, you know, come up with their, they have, they're required to identify winnable battles. And we went and looked at our call volume and, and we had identified that 20% of all of our calls were behavioral health and substance use disorder related and public health identified that as their number one winnable battle. And so we had kind of confirmation there that we were headed down the right road together and it was an underserved population of people because historically what we had done is we had brought an ambulance and taken every patient to the emergency room where they'd sit for two or three or four days sometimes waiting for placement, you know, and, and this is an, uh, an inherently unstable environment with an inherently unstable person. And we wonder why they don't get better. And so, um, what we asked is what would it look like if, if we could do something totally different? So we got a bunch of partners in the room, the behavioral health agencies, law enforcement agencies, all the hospital systems. And we used the lean uh, approach and we modeled the current decision-making, the previous decision-making process step-by-step. And what we found is that for a single behavioral health patient um, who was in crisis, from the time they called 911 to the time they got the definitive intervention was 160 decision points. And then we added a dollar figure to each wow. one of those decision points. <laughs> All right. And I would bet you that that is the, that is the standard in our country today is 160 decision points to get them to definitive intervention. Did you write these um, down by chance? Is that something you could publish for the world? I think that would be so interesting <laughs> to see. Yeah. I mean, we, we had it on some, honestly, it took up, we, we, we actually had a mapping system that we used mm-hmm. and, and the mapping system took up an entire wall of a conference room. Uh, I'm not, I'm I'm actually not kidding about it. I think that would be just that visual alone is so telling, but I wonder it would be a really interesting tool and a takeaway here. So maybe a a conference topic for you, Uh, a little plug for our friends at GEMS and their EMS Today conference Um, (laughs) is, uh, you know, the the idea of of filling the blanks for your own community, right? Kind of like a family, like my kids learning how to do a family tree in school right now. And, you know, if you were to look at your community... (laughs) Sorry, I just got told it's called GemsCon. Sorry, Jeff. GemsCon, not EMS Today. Formerly known as EMS Today. It's the prince of conferences. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, I think that would be a tremendous uh, idea and, and a takeaway uh, to give somebody, a, you know, a community a tool to basically understand what to put in each box and sort of see the power map, right? And yeah, I think, God, how, how amazing that would be. So if, if you haven't written it down, I, I, that would be a wonderful thing I think we could do as a follow-up to this. Awesome. I would, yeah, I'd be very interested in, do, in doing that. That's, uh, and, 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 and really when we saw that, it was breathtaking for everybody. And when we saw the, t- the price tag that was attached to it, well, it was easy to find the cost savings associated with doing something different. So we had instant buy-in from everybody in the room because all the decision makers were there. We all agreed that the current model wasn't working. And we all agreed that the current model was very expensive. 
so the proof was in the pudding. And then um, we had the Aurora theater shooting and um, the governor at the time, who's now uh, this, uh, U.S. Senator uh, Hickenlooper, um, freed up $30 million overnight uh, to focus on behavioral health. And it created our, our, our statewide Colorado crisis um, response system. And because we had mapped out not only the model that didn't work, but we mapped out the ideal model for both a rural environment and a major metropolitan area because we had brought in um, City of Colorado Springs and American Medical Response into this. Um, the City of Colorado Springs Fire Department was working on their own program, which they now call CIT, which works great in a major metropolitan area. It's a law enforcement officer, a licensed clinical social worker, and a, 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 and a paramedic working together uh, to respond to these behavioral health calls. And that works really well in a major metropolitan area that has a lot of resources. Unfortunately, in a rural area where we don't have as many resources, we had to come up with an alternative model. And that's really where community paramedicine worked for us because the community paramedic curriculum had a lot of behavioral health components to it. And then we bolstered that with motivational interviewing, screening, brief intervention and referral for treatment, and then CIT training. Um, we added that to the curriculum. And then we put all of our providers through an accredited college to learn that program. And, and then we, we kind of, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna pretend like our first step was a perfect step. We had a lot of stumbles along the way. Um, and we made a lot like of what? mistakes along like the what? way. Right, guys, I, I wanna, there's a couple mile posts along what you just said that I want to come back to, but to dig in a little bit to that. What, what are some of those examples of things you didn't do well that, you know, knowing now you do differently? Yeah, maybe we can save some people some trouble. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And, and, and really, we're an open book about this stuff. So um, uh, I love other people learning from our mistakes. The first one was we forced everyone to take the training. We didn't, we, we said, if you're a paramedic and you work for our organization, you're going to be a community paramedic. And everybody went through the course and, and, and that was, that was painful because there are people that are called to do this kind of work. And there are people that they, this is not the work for them. Um, and so really identifying who are your, you know, who are going to be your best allies for the program and identifying the people that are going to thrive in this environment and are going to be uh, motivated to do this kind of work. I think is really important. So let, um, let me pause real quick. Were you saying that it was something you would, that you see as a lesson learned because you ended up weeding people out or because it was an unnecessary burden? Because I would actually think that the, the weed out is probably a good thing, right? If you find out that you went through this and you're not, you're not called to it as vocationally, as you said, but at the same time, do you think that there are also people who are kind of naturally gravitate toward, as you mentioned, the one who's already spending hours on the call, you know, digging into those details, do they need the same level of handholding? So I, I think that it, it, it's, it's kind of the, the, the truth is in the middle there. Um, we, we forced a lot of people into learning this, this process that that wasn't their calling. That wasn't what they were meant to do. Um, and in doing so, we created angst and animosity amongst our workforce um, unnecessarily. So, whereas if we'd have, if we had just, you know, selected a few people, a smaller group, it would have cost us less. Um, and, and I think that, um, um, that it would have created more harmonization within the organization. We ultimately got where we needed to, um, but there were some growing pains associated with that. So, um, we still open it up to all of our employees. Um, but we don't, 
you require every employee to do this work. Um, because I really do feel like this work is a calling and, and that, uh, you know, it needs to be people who have a passion for it. And, so. and do you, where do you finding this? I got one other question on this. I want to, I want to steer you toward, but what do you find is the characteristic? I guess to me, I see a lot of noise around topics related to education in this industry. And as a guy, if you look, if my camera was pointing that way, you'd only see three of my four degree certificates. Anyway, um, I tend to think it's a red herring because formal education, college education, that kind of thing. Again, like you say, certain people are called to it. There are plenty of very, very successful, some of the most successful people never finished college, maybe never even started college, right? Especially when you measure by dimensions other than money. Um, so do we? Do you think, again, um, if you were gonna recruit somebody into either off your line, into a CP role or from the community at large into a CP role and kind of describe what the ideal candidate is and what their ideal skill sets are. One of which I hope is going to be data. We'll come back to that. <laughs> but, but it's a data-driven process. There's a lot of information being captured, right? But aside from that, what do you see as being the makeup of the ideal CP. And I realized that, by the way, you've worked in a lot of different communities. So I'm asking that kind of with the, the, the read between the lines on that is I'm not sure there is one. I think it's a bit of a trick question. But in your communities that you've worked on, what, what characteristics do you think would shine in common? Honestly, it's, it's probably the guy, if you go to your management team and you ask him who's the biggest pain in the butt, it's probably that guy. It is. It's, it's, it's the one that asks the questions that challenges the way things are done. The one who, you know, does it respectfully as much as possible, but we all know that, you know, paramedics are, are, are a different breed and um, it's the one who embraces change the most, right? Like, why is that? Why is that? Why is that suited to CP, MIH, MICP, this future thing uh, specifically? Is it, is it, and is it, do you think that CP is such a break from the norm that it requires someone who's an iconoclast? It was kind of a nice summary, I think, of what you're describing. I, I, I think it is a, it is a, a dramatic change in the mindset. It is, it is a, a dramatic transition. Um, and, and in the, in the fact that you now are empowered to find the answer, right? The answers aren't given to you. Um, the answers aren't there in, in the guidelines all the time. Um, you are empowered to go out there and find the answers for yourself um, and, and, not, you know, and to reach out to those other community partners and ask them the questions. And honestly, you know, to have the passion to be an advocate for your patients, um, even when it's uncomfortable to do so. So there are times, go ahead. No, I just, I'm hearing two different characteristics of it. A lot of what I've been taking notes on here, though, I come back to sort of analogies for what you're describing, because there's so much richness to it. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't read the comments either. <laughs> we'll go back to that. So, but there's so much richness, James, and I think what you're describing and, and sort of some of the, the items that come to me are analogies, right? I think on the one hand, you're describing someone who has the characteristic of a detective, Right. Who is someone? And sort of what I hear, right? The the, the analogies is almost professions, and I call I think of of one of the previous talks that I gave uh, for a, it was a, one of my articles for Gents, 
um, was with John Deckers, who's the chief of Westwood Fire in Massachusetts. And I described him, he's just an amazing leader with a very different pedigree. That was the, in the title of the article. And one of the things that he mentioned, he said he thinks some of the greatest practitioners, clinicians that he works with, both fire and EMS, separately and together, had another career before they came to this industry. Right? They have experience that, that they bring to bear, human relatable experience. I'm hearing you describe journalism, right? The, the willingness to ask and listen, right? I'm hearing detective. And it's funny because when you talk about police, right? But again, like not, not necessarily beat cop who's reacting to what they're seeing, right? But, but detective who's digging into the details and like, let's find the nuance. I'm hearing psychologist. I'm hearing social work, right? And it's funny because I think one of the most beautiful things that you're describing, and I, I hope everybody takes this as the, the underlying bolded take-home message, is the relationship bit, right? That there are communities, there are agencies that try to do community prime medicine or something like it on its own. And they tend to fall away, they tend to shrivel, right? Whereas what you're describing is really someone who can be a, a relationship builder, maybe maybe bust heads to get it done, their mission's in the right place, but I think, you know, it, it, it's they're mission oriented, but you also know that their heart's there, right? They're doing it for the right reason. They're not doing it to be a pain in the ass. They're being right. a pain in the ass for a bigger picture reason. Um, and if you do that and you're genuinely interested in hearing, and again, I think of like my bias being a journalist, that's kind of what journalists do, right? Like I want to get to the heart of a matter, not because I'm trying to be a thorn in your side, but because I want to understand. And, if, and, and, and to the degree that you want to understand people, if we look at that, there's been so much history of the oppositional relationships between social work and nursing and, and, uh, and EMS and fire and policing and so on around this type of practice. But in reality, they're kind of flavors of similar things. And so if we instead could see, well, what if you could bring a social worker in? What if you could take a medic and bring them into a social work agency and kind of blend those characteristics? Now, all of a sudden, you've got these wonderful hybrids that have the ability to be the other, one of the analogies I wrote, the Rosetta Stone, right? You, you, you speak each other's language. And so instead of being threatened, you can be the linchpin at the center that helps the navigation, which ultimately is so much of what this is about. Uh, what do you think? I, I think you <laughs> hit the nail on the I head. I hear. Yeah, that's a, you hit the nail on the head. We, I tell people all the time, we are not the ones with the answers. We're the ones that know how to get you to the services that have the answers. We are, we are not the answer to everything. We just have so many good community partners that want to help, that want to serve, that want to be of service to the community. Um, and, and they've helped us understand what their, what their abilities are. And so now our goal is to, and this speaks to uh, what um, Jeff was asking about um, with the, uh, how do you help patients that don't want to help themselves? The answer is honestly motivational interviewing. Um, it is the most powerful tool that we use in our, in our arsenal. And, and it really is actively listening to the patient and, and not listening to decide what you're going to say back to them, but listening to let them know that you understand exactly what they're trying to say. And then repeat that back to them in a meaningful way so that they know you heard them. And then once you understand what it is that motivates them, then you can help them become empowered to make the best decisions for themselves. It is a hard thing to do because it means giving up control and making ourselves vulnerable as providers. 
And, and we're not good at that as a general rule because we generally need to be in control. And so if we can take that step back and allow the patient to be in control of their life and their decision process and empower them with information, how, how great is that? How much have we just taught that person? How much have we been part of the education process for that person to empower them and their decision-making and improving their education literacy? I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm off mute. Yeah, I, I'm so enthralled by this. Besides, again, as you talked about your passion and the interest in this, it's just, it's, a, it's wonderful to hear you talk about it. I want to make sure that we build on something that you just said to, to plug an idea in this realm of non-transport longitudinal care that I don't think is getting enough attention and we need and needs to get more. And I'm trying and you're trying and there's a number, number of us who really been focusing on this and that's the mental impact on the provider, right? Because you mentioned control, right? So it, here's a, a plug for a talk, not ironically, it was given at the first international roundtable on community paramedicine that I attended. This was in uh, Saskatchewan. So I had to, <laughs> I, I went up there um, and uh, beautiful place, by the way, uh, flat, but beautiful. Uh, and uh, I heard Brian LaCroix, you mentioned Minnesota. So Brian LaCroix of Alina Health, Pat Songer, who's now uh, with Mercy Flights in Oregon and Monique Rose, who I'm not entirely sure where she is right now, but she is in my world, just the badassest of badasses. Um, and these three folks gave a talk about community paramedicine that changed my entire view Again, I'm not a clinician, as you know, as probably everybody, for the record, if anybody ever wonders, well, I've been a medic, I am not. I am not a clinician. I'm a tech geek and I'm a business guy um, and, uh, and a writer and a bunch of other things. And I'm not a medic. I wish I was, but that's another story. Um, so, so these amazing clinicians talked about control and what happens when you realize that you don't have any, right? And, and in particular, that for most people, life is a terminal condition. Right. Um, so this idea that where there is stigma around death and there is stigma around failure and there is stigma around speaking up about how you're doing today, then you put that into then you put that into a community paramedicine ish environment. And you add in the heartbreak that is inevitable of watching these people decline because people decline, right? It's not because you failed. It's not because you suck. It's not because the medicine didn't necessarily work. It's even if they did work, right? Sometimes the most amazing role, and we, we, we can talk another time or later about the, the economics of how you can pay for CP, but one of the most compelling revenue drivers for community paramedicine as a practice is loneliness reduction, right? Sometimes people just need a friend. Right. And especially as people get older and they're isolated and pandemic and they're afraid and mental issues and so on. Right. And so the idea that if you are the person that Mrs. Smith has told about the grandkids that don't come see her anymore and she declines, you have heartbreak on top of trauma. And that is not something I just got to chill as I say that. I mean, it affects me. It's one reason I do this. Like, that is something that people and Monique talked about it so tellingly in her in her talk at this conference that, again, it was it changed me and my view, like someone who is used to seeing people splayed out on the concrete. But what broke her was getting to know people. 
right? And, and we don't train folks for that. The idea of being in, in community paramedic uh, roles because it's the right thing to do for your community, but we already aren't doing enough to maintain the mental health and wellness of care providers in traumatic situations where you learn to compartmentalize. Now you're taking that in an environment where it's plucking everything that is you as a person, right? And as you mentioned, what you're describing, again, to use analogies, like you're talking about empaths, right? I mean, people who are, they feel so deeply that they want to sit with you and make you better. And when you die, we have to deal with that. And as an industry, we're not dealing with that, right? We're only starting to deal with that in the traumatic environment. I don't think we've even started in the CP environment. And, and now we're going to end up with a generation of practitioners that want to do this work. And we don't necessarily, I don't think yet, have the tools to talk with them about it. Some folks are coming up with it. Big ups for Ron Nichols in Chambers County EMS in Texas, who is just on, on the front of this, right? Trying to come up with ways of, of, of watching out for his people. Um, what do you do? How would you engage with your crews when, when they are, are, when they break, right? I mean, if they do their jobs right, they break. And that's a, that's a paradox. How would you deal with that? Well, I, I think the first key is, and, and, and thank you again for bringing up just an absolutely important part of our program. Um, I think, first of all, if you wait until they break, you've waited too long. Um, Right, you got it. You got to build resiliency on the front end, and so part of our curriculum involves eight hours of training specifically around uh, first responder resiliency. And so we use a, a first responder resiliency curriculum that was designed on uh, from the Army's resiliency curriculum, um, where you know they were sending these soldiers off to war, um, and they knew they were going to see things that would break them. But the thing is, is you can build resiliency. Um, into uh, a person's daily behaviors. And when you do that, if you give them the tools, again, we're giving our providers the tools by educating them on what it means to be resilient. Um, and one of the important pieces that you build that resiliency into them. And then one of the important pieces in that resiliency toolbox is um, reframing how you look at things, right? And Malcolm Gladwell, who I think is a phenomenal author, um, talks about... Uh, failure and how important failure is and how you look at failure. Um, and, and if you reshape, you know, if you understand that, you know, um, if you define saving a life as success, then losing a life is potentially failure, right? But if you define um, your goal as making a meaningful difference in a person's life by being there in their time of need, then you will find a lot more success in this field. And so I think resiliency is, is an important piece, reframing how we, um, what we do um, from, you know, just simply life-saving, which that is a piece of what we do. But also I think the bigger piece is, is what I call their, their therapy, where you're there to hold their hand, actively listen to them, and then let them know that you're here with them until you come up with a solution together. And and, and that is such an important piece because you walk away for, if you do that every single time, if you're true to that, it's the best of your ability, you walk away with a successful encounter every single time, regardless of, of, of mortality. You um, know, it's so beautiful what you're saying. And I, I want to just sort of bring to that topic something that has been starting to talk about now. Uh, I'm involved in it from a variety of angles, including professionally, I suppose. 
but I've heard flavors of this from the likes of Peter Antevi. Uh, I mentioned uh, Bruce Baxter earlier, and it's the end of life process, right? So um, we, my, in my family, there's sort of this odd, ironic, uh, quasi joke that both my sister and I ended up in the death business. Uh, I work on the tech side and she, she counsels families to try to understand the, what the process looks like. Um, but, you know, Peter and, and some others that he has worked with have, have talked about the importance of pulsed, right? This, this, what uh, different places call different things, but portable orders or physician's orders uh, for life sustaining treatment. Uh, and again, various acronyms in various places. In, on the one hand, that is an emerging movement. It's a national movement now, thankfully. Uh, Colorado has one. I think you call it post, I believe, in Colorado, yeah. right? Um, and this idea of, of allowing the, the family, the loved ones to recognize that the family's wishes, or the, the patient's wishes, rather, you know, are what they are. And, and, and maybe, like you say, they're there. Like, let them go off into the night, not feel alone. But, but let them go off peacefully. <laughs> what I think was really interesting, and it dovetails to what you're talking about as far as the, the taking care of the providers and being there for them too, came from Bruce. Uh, Bruce went through some personal hardship, family hardship. I won't talk about it clearly on record, <laughs> but it, it was extremely emotional. And he called me up one day and he, and he talked about an observation he had that I have not heard enough people talk about. I wanna make sure we get it here, get your thoughts. I know this will be the last thought today before we take some questions. Um, <laughs> but it was about the ones we leave behind, right? And, and he mentioned how, you know, some agencies, I mentioned uh, Chambers County, also ESD 48 in Texas, other places that hire psychiatrists, psychologists, et cetera, to work with their agencies, right? Um, peer counselors, lots of places do that. Uh, we have chaplains, depending on your service type, right? But when, when you take someone's life partner away in that rig, right, at the end of their time, or you're, or you transition them to hospice, right, and, and maybe you're taking care of them in the home, it's a wonderful thing, but who, who hugs the spouse, right, we, we talk about, we don't talk about that, right, this idea that at the end of the day, this person may get carted off in the back of a rig to, to someplace, and this is by the way, the first death that I ex ever experienced in the back of an ambulance was like this, um, on a ride along in New York City, where um, a the, the crew that showed up did things I didn't know humans could do to other humans at the time. I mean, they brought this guy back, man. He was dead. Uh, it was an older fellow, about 70-something, 80-something years old, that choked on a three-inch piece of chicken. Uh, and he was gone, right? I mean, we're, that's a big piece of chicken, by the way, right? And, and we're talking like, I mean, he was hypoxic, eyes bugging out of the head, his heart had stopped. I mean, this guy was gone. And they brought him back. And, and you know, his, his wife was standing there and, and just watching her life crack crumble right in front of her. She'd probably been married 50 years. Like my grandparents were, you know, or more. And, and, uh, then his daughter comes in and she's just freaking out. Right. I mean, what, what's happening and this and that, and they got him back and they, they took him over to Lenox Hill hospital in New York city. Um, and he was awake and his heart was ringing. He was looking around. And as soon as they wheeled him into the, over the ED threshold, he coded on the spot. And, and I mean, whether it was that he was unstable, whether it was that he, you know, he had that extra moment of like realizing where he was, whatever it was, but that family never got a chance to say goodbye because the crew said, we'll see you down the street. Like, we'll see you in three minutes. You'll be right there. And he didn't make it. 
And, and so Bruce made me think about this idea that like, who makes sure that the, the wife or the husband or the kids know how to, they remember not to lock themselves out of the house, right? And, you know, because their life is, is temporarily stopped, right, when this happens. And so I, I think that compassion bit, which wraps up so much in it, it's patient care, it's provider care, it's what happens next, um, it's, it's bedside manner. Obviously, I mean, that's a lot of what you were talking about earlier in our discussion here, right? Who takes the time to know people? So, so what do we do as an industry to make sure that we are not technicians, right? That we are not button pushers and, and medication pushers, but we are clinicians, right? Who are seen as taking care of humanists, by the way, which might be a better name for what this industry does um, than clinicians or technicians or medics or firefighters. We, at the end of the day, we are protecting people and communities and the places that they live and all those things. How do we, uh, and this will dovetail, by the way, Jeff, into the last qu the question that's up here about safe injection sites, but James, how would you recommend that this industry transition itself from if this do that protocol driven right to what you're describing which is story driven right longitudinal in nature human in 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 fact right and and how to explain that while also being ready for all that that means which means being able to take care of the ones that get left behind and the ones that have to carry that into the next call um what do we do <laughs> in two minutes? <laughs> so, so yeah, it, I, honestly, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward answer. It, it, it does, I, I know it sounds complicated, but I don't think it is. I, I think it's pretty black and white. And that is, it's, it's in the root of our education right now. It's a hundred percent about, you know, learning about disease processes and, and how to treat those disease processes, um, you know, in order. Um, and, and, and when you do that, you know, if you treat a heart attack, you win some, you lose some. I think that came from, uh, from Patch Adams from the movie where, you know, if you treat a disease, you win some, you lose some. But if you treat a person, right, who just happens to have a disease, um, then you always win. And so the key is in the education process, we need to stop making it solely 160 hours for an EMT class, right? That's solely about learning about disease processes. And it probably needs to be about a third learning disease processes, a third learning the biopsychosocial model of medicine, um, and then a third learning about, um, you know, how to take care of ourselves as providers and, and how to be compassionate for others. Um, and, and so honestly, that third, that, that last third, so it'd be a third, uh, the, the skills, you know, the, the learning about the disease processes and the medicine, a third learning about the biopsychosocial model of medicine. And then honestly, the third, the, the last piece, I bring in Franklin Covey and let him teach, you know, just uncommon customer care, right? I mean, places that have mastered that are the Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, places like Disneyland. I mean, they have, what would it look like if Disney ran your organization? I mean, that is, I know it sounds touchy-feely, but anybody who's been in this business for any length of time and has been within that situation, I've been in almost that exact situation and I've been on the side where I've made the wrong statement. Hey, we'll see you at the hospital. Right. And then we shut the doors and they never see their loved one again. And I've been on the other side where I've, you know, I've said, Hey, do you want to take a minute, a minute to just say goodbye to them uh, or just, you know, say, Thanks. say, we'll see you later or, or whatever, you know, so you have an opportunity 
to make that connection with them just in case this is the last time. By the way, right? you know that reference that reference you just made to Disney is so not hokey, by the way. Um, I know that Ryan Thorne, uh, Thorne Ambulance, because he texted me uh, in relation to something that we were talking about here. So I think he's listening somewhere here. Um, he and I had a conversation about this a couple of weeks ago. I, I, I came away from an ambulance service here in California uh, wondering why we don't wrap ambulances with Disney characters. I was on site and I, it was, it's a wonderful service. They're great. Uh, in fact, I'll give a play. It's Royal Ambulance. And I was meeting with Steve Grau from Royal Ambulance, who's fantastic, wins every award that he deserves and so on. Um, and he's got a crown on the side of his logo. That's the logo of his, of his agency. And I remember thinking, kids love that. Like, why just a crown? Like, where's the dragon, you know, and the princesses and, and Peanuts gang and all that sort of stuff. And it's not, I don't think it's hokey at all. I mean, I think the idea that could, could we make ourselves softer and still maintain a scientific rigor. I mean, every children's hospital does that, don't they? I mean, they, it's all colors and teddy bears and, and you know, balloons and things like that. Why don't we, when we show up, I mean, I understand you need to be visible, right? And I understand the science is serious, but to the degree that maybe we could make it more approachable in that way, where there's some softness to that. Uh, I, I, I mean, the fact that you mentioned Disney, I think that's tremendous. I think it would be a wonderful thing to go there. I also put other companies, Delta Airlines, Neiman Marcus, Mercedes-Benz, Toyota. I mean, these organizations have specialized, they've written the case studies on customer service, right? That's such a fantastic uh, uh, ethos. So let me finish with one last question here for you, because ultimately the money question does come up in every one of these programs. And as far as I'm concerned, money is driven, should be driven by data uh, as to make sure you know what you're getting and you're getting value for what you're spending. Um, so when you are faced with a community where you are gonna have this kind of uh, engagement and you're going to uh, the third, the third, the third, right? The skills, the psychosocial, also known as social determinants of health. I think we can put it under that umbrella. Um, and the third is making sure that you live and, and are capable of serving tomorrow, right? So making sure you're okay. I think that's a, tr by the way, I love that you made that an even third because that is so easy for folks to say, and in the extra 30 minutes of the day, but no, that is a massive chunk of making sure you, you are here again tomorrow. Um, how would you demonstrate value, right? When, when you're looking at things what, from a data perspective, from a funding perspective, um, what, is, what is success to you, right? You talk about the idea that it's not just about a save, right? It's really about the person. And that's wonderful, but it's also more complicated because it's not binary, right? So it's not a, I either saved you or I didn't save you. Um, if I'm showing that you went from six packs a day to two packs a day, I have some numbers, but how do you measure happiness? How do you measure satisfaction? How do you measure a greater degree of comfort in such a way that you can translate that with your international finance degree, right? To something that people will put numbers on. Uh, and then that'll be my last point here, I think, before we take a couple of questions. So I think it starts again thinking outside the box, and and I hate that term, but but really it is. It's, the, it's so better than the wheelhouse. If you say anything involving a wheelhouse or out of pocket, I'm I'm gone. But you're good with outside the box. Yeah, no, I I, I for me it was getting buy-in from the front side and using um, learned experiences to drive what we actually do. Listening to patients, listening to clients, and listening to our community partners, and and that starts 
with who you hire. Like when I, we just hired three more community paramedics to add to our team. Um, and so when, when we hired them, I brought in community partners and they were involved in the hiring panel. So the, the very people that were going to be working with these folks, I wanted their opinion. I don't want their buy-in. I wanted their input. So that's the first thing. Um, and then the second thing is I don't just, I don't just make the questions up myself at the things. I mean, the data that, that, that we collect, I, again, ask the community partners, what's important to you? What information do you want? And I'll tell you the, the single most important piece of data to me beyond everything else is our client satisfaction score. Uh, the other data is important and it helps show cost savings and things like that. And I've got all that. I can tell you that, you know, in the last five years of our program, we've saved three and a half million dollars in downstream cost savings. I can tell you that, you know, um, that we've diverted more than 3000 patients away from the emergency room to alternative destinations. And we've done it successfully and safely without a single Sentinel event, knock on wood. Um, all of that, I can tell you, but the number one thing that, that I'm most proud of is that our average satisfaction score for a client that is in behavioral crisis, calling us in their darkest hour of need, or not even calling us, having us show up in their darkest hour of need, our average client satisfaction score is 4.6 out of 5. And I can't ask for better success than that. And I can't ask for a happier place to end that. Thank you for your time and for that, just all the inspiration and leadership um, that I think at the end of the day, it doesn't get better than that, right? The patients themselves are, are saying you're doing everything they could hope for you to do. Um, all right, let's take, there's a, a question here and also a statement I think it's worth reading uh, from the audience. Uh, quote, it's okay to feel stressed in this industry. You don't have to be ashamed of it, end quote. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's any way to be uh, more emphatic on that very point. I think the other, uh, the only part that I would add to it is that there really are people paying attention now. Uh, and, and it's a wonderful thing. Uh, you know, large and small, fire, fire and EMS, public and private, I am seeing this. Uh, there are really people trying to ensure that they are there, <laughs> you know, the, the they're there that you were talking about, James, um, and they're really listening. It, it, it's recognizing, I think, that rather than, rather than weakness, <laughs> that being able to be affected by what you're doing actually makes you better. Right. It, it, in fact, I've I've often sort of thought about like if, if you are not emotionally affected by this industry, that's probably worse. Right. <laughs> this stuff's emotional. Um, and and whether it's saving uh, someone's place of 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 uh, living or they're you know now allowing them to go to business or pulling you know tomorrow and and pulling them out of a car or picking them off the floor. Like, this is real stuff. And so I feel like anybody who isn't affected either is lying. Uh, and needs to feel comfortable coming forward. And that's a whole topic on itself, right? Or they are too hard. Um, and some of the empathy needs to be, they need to be reminded why they're doing this in the first place. Um, so uh, that point, I think is, again, there are a lot of people listening. Uh, Ryan mentioned that these are the kinds of conversations that will continue to push our industry forward. Ryan, you you know, I think you're amazing at, and, and people should be studying everything you're doing. Uh, the more vocal we can be, the more transparent we are, the more uh, we will collectively improve as an industry, end quote. And, and so again, I just think that this is, a, this is a group effort and it's something that I hope, you know, James, you, you really embody and you pass embodies because as you mentioned, it's really not blue versus red, right? I mean, you guys bleed purple um, and, and, and a little, you know, 
there's police, there's fire, there's social work, there's EMS. I mean, it, it, there's dispatchers. Uh, they're starting to finally get some of the attention that they deserve for the work that they do. Yep. Um, I mean, clearly this is a group effort and, and any one, uh, it's funny, a, a, another person I look up to so much, Art Grew, that uh, Bennington Rescue Squad reminded me that in this industry, it's not about a collection of knives. Uh, it's a multi-tool, right? This idea that you're not, you're not the, there's no one tool, right? It's, it, it, it's really an idea that everybody sort of comes together and, and you have to be a variety of different things. Um, let's answer this one question. Yeah, the other person, by the way, uh, with credit to Josh Parrish from Milwaukee Fire, who also pointed out to me, it's not just multi-tool, apparently it's Gerber tool. Right? We talk about Gerber tools? Sorry, <laughs> right, so Gerber tool. I'll make sure I give the credit where it's due for teaching me that. Um, so the question that came up from earlier was about the safe injection site. Um, and uh, James, certainly happy to have you answer this before me. But the question was, can you give an example of when a safe injection site uh, would be more harmful than helpful? You want to take a stab at that and then all those well? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, it's, you know, in, in our community, um, each community is different, right? We just don't have much need in the current community that I work in for that. Um, for that service. If we did, we would, we would be, you know, we'd be on the front line working with all of our other community partners to bring something like that to fruition. Um, but I, I think um, when it, my answer would be when it creates an unwanted or unneeded stigma, um, when you're not working with your community partners, when you're not finding a solution together as a team to meet those needs, then, then I think if it, if it creates derision and division, then it's probably not a helpful tool. Um, if, if you can do it in a meaningful way that creates unity to the best of your ability, that creates unity and creates um, progressive growth for the community, um, and, and then you're really meeting the client's needs, you're not just pushing an agenda, I think that that's really important. Yeah, I would, I would just dovetail on that, that I, I think the, the risk of mismatch is really the, the problem that I see. Again, if you, if, if you need it, if your community needs that kind of resource, and it can demonstrate that it needs that kind of resource because the evidence is there to show that you are having an HIV problem as a result of shared needles, or you are having a hepatitis problem, right? So if, if it's simply a matter of saying, we want to give people a friendlier, more safer environment, okay, well, again, what, what challenge are you going to introduce? And I think, you know, some of the places where this has been a big topic for a long time and controversial places like San Francisco, um, you know, for better and worse, San Francisco tends to do a lot of things in a knee-jerk fashion. Um, and so I think, uh, James, now that's not necessarily anyone's, one person's fault, right? Big complex organizations, someone has to put, someone decides to act and that could be a very good thing. But I think, James, you, you hit it on the head, um, this idea of bringing the parties together to make sure that what one person is doing isn't actually counterproductive to what someone else is trying to do. Um, and, and if it turns out that you introduce a, pro, you know, a solution over here that makes somebody else's uh, it kind of uh, lets the uh, lets the, the 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 dam the water out of the dam, right? Um, you know, if you 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 did a good thing over here. Uh, I remember there's a, a movie I won't mention it right now. Well, okay, I will. It's Superman. <laughs> I'll just say Man of Steel. I'm a fan, I'm a geek. It is what it is. Anyway, there was a story told in in Man of Steel of how you know in order to 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 save the land, they set up a dam, and then all night they heard the horses drowning a mile away, right? <laughs> I've always thought that was a really emotional story of like a solution over here that causes an unintended problem over there. Um, that your solution, the way you described it, James, is, is really the, the answer to that is get everybody together. And then the, the last analogy I wanted to make sure I, I wrote it down. So I want to come back to it. But you talked about it at the beginning when you said flow like water, 
right? Is is I tend to use the, and I really do pay attention when you speak, um, but the, uh, the example um, or the analogy comes to mind is the palm tree, right? And just, you know, kudos to where yes. we both are from, right? But, but isn't it remarkable? They're thin and, and they're floppy. And, you know, you look at the sequoias, which we also have here, right? And, and the, the trees that have been around, the old, gro uh, 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 the old growth oaks that are tremendous, beautiful trees, but they fall. Right? I mean, if, if, the, if there's erosion or there's too high wind, they, they tip over, but the, the palm tree bends um, and, and then it stands back up. It remembers who it is, right? So it's not that it doesn't have a sense of identity, but it, it moves in the wind and then returns to where it was. And, and, and it is inherently resilient for that, Matt, for that reason. Uh, I just think that's such a perfect analogy for so much of what you've talked about here. Uh, making sure you have your sense of self, your sense of identity, your sense of community, uh, remember your purpose, uh, but at the same time, not to be so dogmatic that you're going down a line that turns out to be irrelevant. Uh, and, and so you're gonna find that relevancy by talking with those partners. Uh, how's that for a, for a summary of hopefully the last hour of wisdom that you've provided? Uh, uh, I, I think I could what? I, I couldn't. I couldn't have said it better. And if I, if we have time, I'll give one quick example. Please. Um, so we, uh, you know, we could have implemented um, a, 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 a needle exchange program or something like that in our community. And, and the opportunities were there, and there was certainly some talk about doing something like that. But you know, in doing the community needs assessment, it just wasn't a need, and the pushback from the community for a program like that would have been great. Um, but because we didn't just do it because we wanted to do it and we held off, we were actually to develop, we were able to develop an amazing partnership with the Front Range Clinic, which is a great organization that does medication assisted treatment uh, in rural communities. And they actually now come in and team up with us and do a pop-up clinic once a week. Um, and because we were, you know, we didn't alienate community partners. We didn't alienate elected officials. We didn't alienate um, folks within the neighborhood. Um, they actually embraced that project as we brought that in. And now we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that have gotten medication assisted treatment in their community for the first time ever. Um, and I don't think that would have been possible had we tried to push something that really wasn't a need in our community earlier. Outstanding. Uh, I think that's a capstone. And again, thank you for your time, for your wisdom. Uh, thank you, Pass, for all that you're doing. I think, again, I think you are a model you know you're a model <laughs> for, what's, for what so many others need to do. You guys are the most humble, amazing organization Just is, is doing so much innovation that I hope people will look at. Um, so thank you for taking the time. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Just that we've shamelessly stolen everything we have from other people. So thank you for everyone out there that's, that's been supportive and helping us grow and helping us do what we want to do, yourself included, Jonathan. I, I can't say enough. Um, we wouldn't be where we are today and doing what we're doing for our community if it wasn't for all the wonderful folks in the MS community. Well, it takes a village. I'm certainly proud to be a part of it. Thank you for your time. Thank you to everybody for watching, for sticking with us a little past the hour. Um, and uh, James, if, if folks want to follow up with you, is there a best way to reach out to you, by the way, social media, email, and anything well, like that? Honestly, you can email me anytime, McLaughlin at uprad.org. So it's J-M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N at uprad.org. And I'm about the easiest guy in the world to find. So thanks, everybody. Take care and stay safe. Thank you, sir.